Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. What a gorgeous day. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you reveal yourself in creation and the heavens declare your glory. God, we're thankful that every morning we wake up and there's something new, that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for another day to serve you and honor you. And we ask today that you would feed your sheep, that you would lead your sheep beside still waters, that you would teach us where to stand and where to walk, that we be ready when you call that last call, that last trump for your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. When you stop and think about it, the book of Ephesians is like a mini course in theology. It's dealing with the most fundamental Christian doctrines centered on Christ and on his church. Well, let's jump into our text today and a hard time with the title. But I kind of gave it this kind of odd title, so much to be thankful for. Are you thankful for all that God has done? And that's what we need to do is count the blessings we have in Christ. In fact, that's what Paul does in our text today. And we're going to see the reason for Paul's praise for the believers. Verse 15, notice what he says, for this reason, I too. See, because God has blessed his people spiritually, putting his own spirit in them, Paul's just moved to write this prayer of thanksgiving and encouragement. Jump over with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Notice what Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, he had given his life first to God and then to the others to see them come into the kingdom and to see the glory being formed in them. And that's what he sees. In fact, in Ephesians 3.14, he says this, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. See, the divine purpose is to make both the Jew and the Gentile holy one thing, one church. The body of Christ is to be one and it was the mystery unveiled or revealed in the Old Testament times. But now this revelation has been committed to Paul, and he is ecstatic because it was hidden from the people before. In verse 15, again, Paul praises the believers for their faith. Notice, having heard of the faith that's in Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you. When Paul calls the believers at, at Ephesus, he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. He has two ideas in mind. First, their strong testimony of faith and love that he had stirred up. Stirred up, that is, in God, in the Word. And that's what we're called to do, is stir one another in the Lord. So Paul writes it in the book of Ephesians. Their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints, those mark a true Christian. Those mark a, a mature Christian. That's the work that God's doing in you and me. And I love it because sometimes it's hard to love unloving people. And sometimes it's just hard to love people because we're so consumed 
with ourselves. But the Bible says that is the mark of a disciple. Look with me in Philemon chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. You know, that's always my prayer that I would be, you would be, the body of Christ, the most loving people in this community. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 shows us another scene. But now Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us the good news of your faith and love. That you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. You know, one of the things I love is when we have a guest that's coming and visiting, and and I try to gravitate toward them and, and, and pray with them afterwards. And one of the things that I hear is you have such a sweet, loving fellowship. How encouraging to hear that they're growing in that love and grace of Jesus Christ, that they're caring, they're concerned about, they're esteeming others higher than themselves. That love is always contagious. It will either push people away or it will draw people to Christ as Christ desires. Well, the first and primary meaning of the word faith is the exercising of faith. That is a Christian is one who has heard the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, who then exercises his faith in the gospel or simply believed in it. And if he believes in it, he's going to learn to walk it out. First, there's this intellectual element. Faith involves context. For faith to exist, the the content must be proclaimed and then understood. It affects the mind, but again, it must, as I mentioned before, trickle down to the heart. Next, there's this emotional element. It involves the death of the very Son of God for me as a sinner. And faith at this level warms our heart. It stirs our heart and draws us forth to a loving response toward God who has revealed himself in Christ. When you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Well, thirdly, I think we see the volitionary or volitional element. Having perceived and understood the gospel, having been affected by it, The Christian now makes a personal commitment to Christ who died for him. Look with me, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 24 through 25. We see Thomas here, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came, that is, walking through the walls. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then in John 20, verse 26 and 28, it says, After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands, reach reach your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, 
my Lord, my God. The second meaning of the word faith is faithful. Faithful to continue in faith. As we might say, to keep that faith. To keep ourselves in the love of God. See, there's this continuance in faith. That's the mark of a, a believer, a mature believer. Matthew ten twenty two says this. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. See, our faith is to be an enduring faith. It's a continuing faith. It rests and trusts in Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances, whether persecution or no persecution. We're called to be faithful, and we must be faithful. It is therefore also proper to say that a, a Christian is one who is characterized by a full faith to the very end of life. It, it's not one day faithful, the next day not faithful, but to continually press with one foot in front of the other until the Lord brings us home. How are the Ephesian Christians faithful? That's the question. Well, they demonstrated this intellectual element by believing and trusting in Christ for their salvation. Next, the emotional element in that relationship with God and others through worship and the witnessing their love for God. Look with me in Luke 11, 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. There's this continuance again. It's a seeking and believing, trusting completely that God will do exactly what he said he will do. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The third, there is that volitional element we talked about. They will be continuing in the faith regardless of what's going on around them. Notice the phrases, in Christ, in him, or the equivalent nine times in, the, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Again, nine times, that's significant. It occurs 164 times in Paul's writings. The phrase means much more than just believing on Christ or being saved by his atonement. It, it means being joined to Christ in one spiritual body so that what is true of him is also true of us. See, we're learning to work out our salvation in fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in us and the world should see that. Look back at verse 15 in our text today. We see as Paul continues, Paul praises the believers for their love. And he says, your love for all the saints. See, salvation brings affection for those of like faith. That is a greater than love of ones physically related as, as kinfolks. No, this love is the evidence of one's salvation. 
because God's poured his love into our hearts. In fact, John 13, 35 says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The fact is, his disciples that are growing, are growing in that love and grace, will be marked by this love. It's a seal that, that we are his. Galatians 5, 6 says this, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But notice faith working through love. See, faith works through love. We're, we're God's vessels, his loving vessels, and God pours his love in us, works through us, guiding us, that we will pour his love out into this world. Sometimes this world is very unloving, but God loved him so very much he sacrificially gave his life, and that's what we're to do too. Paul continues in verse 16, he says, he does not cease giving thanks for you. While making mention of you in my prayers, Paul's praying for them. The word cease does not mean continuously praying every moment of the day, but it's a persistent prayer life. It has a regularity in praying. Well, look with me at verse 17. We see, again, the Apostle Paul's prayer. Verse 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The great need of every believer is to grow in the knowledge of God. The purpose of this spirit of wisdom and revelation was in order that they may know him better. Well, that means personally, knowing him, growing in that love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I like what Dr. Boyce said was once asked the question, what do you think is the greatest lack among evangelical Christians in America today? So although at an earlier point in my ministry, I might have said to, to be faithful in the teachings of the scripture and to show love for one another or some such thing in the case, I replied, I think that the greatest need of the evangelical church today is for professing Christians really to know God. And that's still the problem today. John 17, 3 says this, This is eternal life that you may know you, the only true Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing him and knowing about him are quite different when you stop and think about it. Knowing in a personal way is an intimate relationship. But knowing about him are simply facts. It's like being a fan of, of, of football or basketball. You know all the statistics. That's great. But do you know them personally? Most of us can say no. We just know what we read. But God wants us to know him personally. Well, I think in verse 18, we see the understanding of the greatness of God's plan. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints are. 
Look at Luke 24, 31 and 32. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I thought about that. And, and you know, when we're reading the word, there are times in my heart and maybe your heart as well that my heart's burning. I know that God's speaking to me. God's showing me something. It's exciting. God wants to excite you. Then in Luke twenty four forty five, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. That personal knowledge of him is essential because then when God opens our minds up, everything clicks. We see the glory and the wonder of who he is. Acts sixteen fourteen says this, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that spoken by Paul. You know, that's my prayer, that God will continue to open our hearts to him more and more, to our understanding and knowing his purpose. That when we read the scripture, we really know the author's intent. We, we ask the question, Lord, what does this tell us about you? And when I look at, again, this person, Lydia, I see that God loved her so much that he opened her heart, that she would respond. She was a worshiper of God, but she will worship him and serve him in a way she's never done before. And that's what happens with that personal, intimate relationship. Psalm 119 says, open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things from your law. See, sometimes we look at the law and all rules, regulations. But God loves us so much that he shows us what's right and what's wrong and how to get right and stay right. It's not that God wants to rob us of joy. God wants to protect us from the things that would hurt us. The reason we often fail to seek the Spirit's illumination is that we have inflated view of ourselves. We're tempted to feel self-sufficient, self-confident, as if we did not need God's help. Let me ask you the question. How much do you need God today? There's an old hymn that says, I need thee every hour. See, if a person's aware that they need him every hour, they will be aware of him every place they go and everything they do. He will be with them and they'll be aware of his presence. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the commentator, he and a young lady had fallen in love with each other, and she belonged to a higher level of society than he did. Although she had become a Christian, therefore regarded such things differently. And her parents saw the disparity in the social status as obstacle to marriage. This man, Philip Henry, 
They said, where has he come from? <laughs> and to this question, the future Mrs. Henry gave this immortal reply, I do not know where he came from, but I know where he's going. She knew him spiritually. She knew that he loved God. He trusted God. And he loved God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. And if he loved God, he would know how to love her. See, every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is saved by grace. He also knows where he's going. We're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in every way and take it to be with him. Knowing this gives the Christians the confidence, the assurance that one day God will come for them. It gives us this assurance that, that we really are God's children and that his hands upon us and leading us in, to a certain and blessed eternity. See, it's those trials, those storms that you and I go through, those difficult times. And when those things pass, because they're only storms that are passing, we so often recognize, God, my faith is real. I have really trusted you. But at the same time, we know it's him that has given us the faith. And he stood by us that whole time. And he remained faithful to us and upheld us. In the Bible, the word hope is used what is certain because it is grounded on what God has done for us in the work of Christ. That is why the Bible speaks of a, a living hope, a blessed hope, a hope which is for sure. Remember the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but wholly lead on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, on other ground is sinking sand. Isn't that so true? When we're standing on Christ, we have that hope. We're, we know where we're going. We have that assurance. But man, if we stand on any other ground, it is sinking sand. One day soon, we're going to be with the king. What a wonderful thought. Well, let me call your attention in verse 19 to really understanding the greatness of God's power. That's what the focus is there. What is the surpassing greatness of this power toward us who believe? There are in accordance with working of the strength of his might, which he has brought about in Christ. And when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Well, notice the, the proof of the greatness of God's power is seen in what God has done in and with Christ. Now, the word power is the word deutimus, which means inherit, inherit in ability or capability or potential. It's, it's a supernatural power, this deutimus power. The word working of his strength comes from the Greek word from which we get the energy from denotes this operative power. So we have the supernatural power, this operative power in you and me. The word might there refers to 
a manifested strength. God's manifested his strength in you and me. But in here, we're talking about Christ. That same power that's in Christ is in you. It's seen in two ways. First, in the raising of Christ from the grave and the raising of Christ in position. In fact, when you and I are baptized, we're buried with him in Christ symbolically and raised in that newness of life. We identify with that death and then one day that he's going to bring us to be with him. Jesus, speaking in this text in John 2, beginning in verse 19, notice, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. I wonder how many times we read into the text. We don't really understand what the text is saying and miss it like these guys did. Because Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about his death and resurrection. And all of Christianity rests on this fact that Jesus has come. He's died to to save sinners. And he was raised from the grave on that third day. There is power in the resurrection of Christ. There is love in his death. And in his ascension, it shows that, again, that our sins are toned and covered, accepted by the Father. Look at Romans fourteen eleven. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. Certainly, when we see what God has done and what God's going to do, You can't help but praise him. Well, in verse 21, we see really the understanding, the greatness of God's person. Let me show you. Far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over all things in the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice that word subjection in verse 22. It suggests he has a preeminence or prominence. The Jews of Paul's day generally believed that angels control the human destiny. So Paul used this normal Jewish hierarchy of terms to indicate Christ is in control. In fact, Christ is on the throne and controlling from the throne even today. In so doing, Christ is exalted, is indicating his position, superiority over all creation, both in heaven and on earth. Psalm 8, 6 says this, And you make him to rule over the works of your hands, And he put all things under his feet. Well, in closing, in closing, God deals with us based upon our future, not our past. See, he said to the cowardly Gideon, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. 
And then speaking to Andrew's brother, Jesus said, Thou art Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, a stone. Gideon did become a mighty man of valor. Simon did become Peter, a rock. And we, as Christians, we live in a future tense as well. Our lives are also controlled by what we shall be when Christ returns. Because we are God's inheritance. We live to please him, to glorify him. God says he'll finish his work in us. We believe and we trust. We know God's calling is God's enabling we know that he's not appointed to a spirit of fear. Knowing these things should lead us as believers to a life, really, of dedication and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we stop and we meditate on it, we have so much to be thankful for. God, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for your plan, your purpose, the hope, the assurance that we have in you. We're assured that one day you'll finish this work. One day you will come for us. And one day we'll be with you forever. We long for that time. But Lord, we want to occupy. We want to be faithful until you come. We want others to see that love that you have for us. We want to love them with the love that you've loved us. And all God's people said, Amen.